Season three, season three, somebody hates us. Season three, Jeff and Scott and Mrs. C. With Blanche and John, they crew a new movie. It's so much fun that you'll have to pee. It's gonna cure your apathy and ennui. It's the Slumgullions. We're still booking guests on the Slumgullions. You're not getting guests on the Slumgullions. Should probably fade on the Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Slum Gully. And I am Jeff. Three hours behind me is Scott, and he's not going to say anything because I'm going to start right off now with Serenity. Not the one from 2005 that was a wrap up to the Nathan Fillion Joss Whedon sci fi series that Fox murdered in its sleep. Uh, I remember I saw Sir, I saw the first Serenity since you brought it up because I every, I feel every any excuse to talk about Firefly should be spoken of. Agreed. I remember when I first heard that Whedon was doing the movie, I it was I didn't actually come in my pants, but I'm pretty sure I got a semi erection. Like I said when I I believe I've mentioned this on the show. I binge watched the entire series. Yes. Mom had watched it. I bought it as a Christmas present for her, so I've been rewatched the entire series. So I was there first day, first show for that thing. And the thing that impressed me most about it, and this surprisingly ties in, mm-hmm. the thing that I loved most about the film Serenity is there achieved a moment. There was one specific moment in that film, and I'm not going to say what it is because we're not really talking about that Serenity, where I thought... Holy fuck, anyone in this cast could die. <laughs> oh, how right you were. It was a legit what the fuck. It was a truly what the fuck moment for me. And Whedon had done that before. Whedon is a true master, I do believe, say of him what you will, of the emotional what the fuck moment. He's a dangerous uh, entertainment psychopath. You can't turn your back on him for a second. And there are there are very few, especially mainstream Hollywood filmmakers, let's say, who go for the true what the fuck moments. I mean, we have we have twists at the end, but rarely, rarely do we have films that truly what the fuck you say, I don't know, halfway through it. Mm-hmm. It is rare that we have a moment like, say, the, the, one of the true first what-the-fuck moments, I, I, well, one of the ones I, I remember knowing of, is Psycho. Yes, that's probably the er example. The uber. <laughs> it's, it's the founding what-the-fuck of film. Yes, yes, yes. But it's something that just truly changes a movie. Well, much like the Serenity from what year was it? Uh, 2005, I believe. Okay. Uh, the new Serenity starring Matthew McConaughey and many others whom Scott will mention because I cannot think of any names right now because I'm very, very high because I just saw the movie again. Oh, did you? I've seen it twice now. I had to see it again just to sit there and go to decide how much I... No! Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk five minutes non-spoiler. I told Scott to see it. I was told to see it by somebody who is a Mike and Ike fan. He came up to me and asked me if I had seen Serenity, and I said, no, I have not, and I really hadn't intended to because the trailer didn't do anything for me. Yeah, I hadn't even seen that. until. Okay. The trailer, it just looked like eh, kind of a body heatish noir thingy, maybe, romantic noir thingy. Exactly. 
And um, this guy, who, as I said, is a Mike and Ike fan, actually grabbed my shirt, looked at me square in the face and said, Jeff, you need to go see Serenity now. <laughs> so I said, OK. And he took me. So, yeah, that was how I saw it. He was like, and he was like, I want to watch your reaction to this movie. And that has only happened one other time. And what was that? The Usual Suspects. Ah, okay. It's, Where I, someone had said, I want to see how you react to this movie. I'm taking you to see it. All right. Were they satisfied with your reaction? Yes. Okay. Uh, similar thing, except um, uh, the crazy person grabbing my shirt was you. Yes, and, yeah, I, um, as as, Scott was the first person that I, I texted when when I got out, and then I hopped on Twitter and just said, "Sweet prom, fuck." I uh, I watched the trailer, mm-hmm. and see, it's really nothing. Yeah, what you said you said to me, uh, I'm not going to give you any spoilers. I'm not going to tell you anything about the the movie. I'm just going to tell you that the movie and the trailer is not the movie you're going to see in the theater. And oh, that is true. Okay, all right, I do remember that. Quite true. Just like in Psycho, the movie takes a turn and you find you're not watching the movie you thought you bought a ticket to. Besides Psycho and this film, the only other movie where I really had that experience was a film with Jack Nicholson called Wolf, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, his werewolf movie. Right. In 1994. And I saw it at... uh, a little theater in Ojai, California that was run as a sideline by some Egyptian guys who actually owned a clothing store in town. Yeah. How they wound up managing this, I don't know. But I didn't like the movie. And part of the reason I didn't like the movie was that midway through, someone who was dead was up and running around and interacting. And I thought, uh, this doesn't make any sense. Well, as it turned out, they showed two reels out of order. Oh, my so. God. And at some point in the film, I realized, oh, okay, no, those that all happened earlier, and now we're back on... Tra- oh, and, and in my mind, I reordered it and put it back in place. Still didn't think it was a very good movie, but at least it made minimal narrative sense. And I went out to the lobby afterwards, and I said, you, you, you realize you guys showed the film out of sequence and the guy looked up at me very doer guy who looks like he owns a clothing like a like a tailor it's like peered over these these half specs from uh behind the popcorn counter and just said do you want the ticket to see it again and i i almost accepted it just because i thought there should be some repercussions but i thought yeah i don't think i could sit through this again even in order maybe even especially in order because the fact I was distracted by how kind of boring and and limp it was by how sort of temporally insane it was by seeing it non-sequentially. So this this movie, however, did what it did to me on purpose with full malice aforethought. Yes. <laughs> so now we we now hopefully by the time you folks are here in this, the film has been out for a while. And hopefully, hopefully well no wait, what the hell am I talking about? No, this is going out there. Fuck that. Go see this movie now. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean agree. there's there's no there's no fucking um advertising for it. I'm not seeing any ads for it. I don't know how long it's going to last. Spend the money, fucking go see this movie. Yeah, it probably will not persist 
in your local multiplex for very long. It's not. I am sure, though, it will find its audience on home video. I hate as much as I hate to say that it will become a hit on video. You know what? I used to hate to say that, and I don't hate to say that anymore because there's lots of movies that just are no longer meant for the the cinema experience as it exists now. The cinema experience is very much like when uh, the movie studios were groping around in the dawn of television trying to find some way to remain relevant. And they were going with VistaVision, Cinemascope, and Smell-O-Vision. And and now we're kind of in a similar spectacle-driven period of film. And, And a movie like this works perfectly well, I think, on your 55 inch HD screen at home. You're, you're not going to lose a tremendous amount. I, I'm not even going to say you lose the, the value of seeing it with an audience because there were seven other people in the theater when I saw it at an 830 yeah. show. It's not yeah. it's not finding its audience, and I don't think we're going to turn that around. That we is a valid point. That is, yeah, 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 yeah. Sad, but very true. Mm-hmm. But I hope, as long I hope as this thing finds its audience, fine. If you don't go see it in the theater, rent the damn thing, but go see it. Absolutely. As long as you know absolutely nothing about it. Right. Don't read anything. Don't read reviews. And we are going to stop this conversation in about two minutes and 45 seconds. And then we're going to start spoiling the crap out of everything because there's things in our heads and they need to come out. (laughs) Um, and you honestly can't talk about this film without spoiling the fuck out of it. And that is one of, like, the, the true geniuses of this thing. Exactly. So look in the description. We'll put the time code where the spoilers start and where they stop. So if you haven't seen it yet, you can skip all that. But in the meantime, I swore off Matthew McConaughey movies <laughs> around the same time I swore off Carl's Jr. and McDonald's. I just felt like all these things are not good for me. I'm getting too old for them. I just need to stop. And it's worked out pretty well. You know, I got my weight under control and, you know, I'm, I'm working out occasionally. And You got a girl? I got a girl and, and uh, I don't have to deal with quite so many uh, redundant... Matthew McConaughey court- movies. Yeah, exactly. Or as my, <laughs> as my friend Laura insists on calling him every time his name comes up. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> I won't say that this turned me around because he still remains a, a flagrant and willful weirdo, but he certainly worked in this role. And, I, and that's how I was going to say the part. It was. I don't know anybody else. I can't. I can't think of anyone else either who who would have pulled it off because there's weirdness going on early in the film that when you look back on the story, you go, "Oh, okay." Those were actual narrative tells. They, they were building their little world here. But what they were saying to me was, you went to see a Matthew McConaughey movie. What the hell do you expect? <laughs> of course you're going to get this kind of weird-ass performance. Deal with and, it. And know, know that this is the most McConaughey that you folks have seen in a long time. And I mean that both artistically and physically. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know what? Remind me when we get to the spoiler section, just say McConaughey, but (laughs) I will remember. I'll know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. All right. And actually the one thing that I want to say to talk again, to talk about how brilliant this film is, is a potential spoiler. So I'm going to save it for the full spoiler section. And I hope the fact that we're doing this is inspiring some of you people to think maybe I should see this movie. I hope so because 
One thing this film does, and I can't stress this enough because it's rare and it's something that I deeply admire, is it plays fair with the audience all the way through. It's going to yeah. take you someplace you don't expect. And even when you figure out what's going on, you're still not going to be ahead of the movie. So I respect that. But it, it absolutely tells you up front that there's some weird shit going on. And, it starts... and there's something that I want to say along those lines, but it's also a mild spoiler. So fuck it. That's it. We're done. Non-spoilers. Go see the movie. We're starting spoiler section now. Scott? Yes. <laughs> okay. We'll have the time code down to the thing. Seriously, I, I can't not, not, not do it. Okay, Scott. So many things, but just the sheer fact, and yes, we're going for the big, I'm going for the big one right off the bat, the sheer fact that the big twist is in the middle of the fucking film. Yes, which to me makes it, makes me think, well, has led me to conclude that it's not a twist, that that the movie, because it has dropped so many clues up to that point, Mm -hmm. doesn't even regard the so-called twist as a surprise. It's just confirmation for the characters that let them play out the rest of the story. It is not, the whole movie does, is not dangling by the, the thin Damoclean thread of a Shyamalan-like twist. Right, right. It doesn't matter if you, fig- I, I figured it out earlier based on the clues dropped in plain sight. I didn't get the specifics. I, I honestly didn't, but I didn't see it. But, but, but I was definitely like, okay, I was waiting for it to drop. All right, I'll tell you when it, I started to figure it out. About the third time, second or third time, you see the incredibly formally dressed fishing gear salesman. Yeah, and okay, he's, and all he, right. Matthew McConaughey's boat pulls away from the dock for like the second or third time, just as he comes running up and he says, and he looks at his watch, and he says, there's a 20-second discrepancy in the cycle. And so I'm thinking, all right, it's either one of two things. It's time travel, or this is some kind of computer simulation. Okay. And at, okay. That, and at that point, I thought, all right, well, I can get mad at that. Because if that's true, then there's a big chance that none of what I'm watching is real, and therefore none of it matters. Because I'm not actually watching, <laughs> I'm not watching humans. But it did such a clever thing. It did the Matrix thing, where yes... Whole parts of this movie are basically computer generated or a kid's dream. But because the kid is real, the consequences are real. Everything mm-hmm. that happens in the in the simulated world resonates in the real world with a character that, despite the fact he never says a word, you start to really feel for. Which is another brilliant thing this movie does. Now, until, now, until the yeah. very end, you never hear the kid talk. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is clever because you don't know... Is he a benevolent god, or is he going to fuck shit up? See, I, I I have to admit, what what when I first started going the hell, um, I start I started trying to figure things out, but I don't know when it happened. I I, I maybe uh, I honestly can't even pick a specific moment because both times I've seen this, I just get into it. I can I can hits- I can pick a specific moment. And, and, and this is only because you warned me that what I saw in the trailer, which is very conventional looking. I mean, the, the trailer is kind of devious. Oh, very much so. brilliantly so. 
looking, um, looking back on. But no, real, real, real fast, real fast. It finally just struck me. This is some weird David Lynchian nightmare, and I'm just going to go along for the ride. And I just stopped trying to figure it out. But what's the moment? David Lynch is, is a good corollary because... Well, I mean, it's just that the, no, no, the, no, the no, first half of the movie is just so bizarre. I was, me being me, I was just enjoying the sheer, what the fuck right. is going well, on here? The reason I, I, the reason I like David Lynch is, is, a, is a parallel is because, one, the performances are all heightened. Yes. Nobody, nobody's performing in, in a terribly realistic way. Some, some people are behaving well below what you would consider to be a normal person's basal metabolism. And some people are so over the top like McConaughey and, at certain points, uh, Anne Hathaway, that you think, okay, is this supposed to be a parody of a neo-noir? Is this supposed to be somebody who is making fun of the genre? As opposed to your other example, Body Heat, which is evoking the genre. And when it first got weird, I mean, there's that, that opening scene with the fishermen and this gigantic sort of Cretaceous-era-sized tuna that he suddenly turns into, you know, Matthew McConaughey turns into Quinn. And then you've got this guy in a in a black suit, little accountant glasses on, carrying a briefcase, <laughs> who runs up to the water's edge, yells at the boat, tries to get their attention, and then when he can't, he takes off his shoes and socks and starts wading into the ocean. I'm going, all right. Because you had warned me that you, it was like, there, there was a high degree of what the fuckery in this movie. I just, I just let that go. But I thought, all right, well, they're signaling pretty early that nobody's behaving in a normal way. And then when Anne Hathaway shows up, and literally there are just like Venetian blind slats of light shadow across <laughs> her face, and she and she's speaking in this sort of breathy, you know, halfway between Jane Greer, halfway between Kathleen Turner voice that's not around. That, you know, there's not a second where he's not smoking or drinking whiskey. I mean, and no he's question. a hooker. And he's a hooker. And he's a hooker. And as somebody pointed out, I, I have I have not read any reviews. And I have not. I have not. I'm not, I'm going, not going to. to. I'm not yeah. going to. I don't care what people are saying. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I don't give a shit. But when I went onto IMDb just to make sure I got all the actors' names right, somebody pointed out, you know, one of the little trivia sections, that his ex-wife is Catwoman, and he's sleeping with Superman's mother. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And it, it's the typical thing. Yeah, he's he's got this. Is, there's an older, but yeah, extraordinarily well preserved, older, richer woman with whom he sleeps for money. Which is kind of which it's kind of the the relationship that Don Johnson had with Virginia Madsen in the Hotspot, uh, another neo noir that was savvy about the genre but took it seriously. And then there there are things that keep happening. I mean, eventually. The guy shows up with a fish finder and says, just take this. This is basically the BFG. This, this will end the game. Just take this super, this, this, this OP weapon. This will help you get justice. It'll help you get justice. Get the fish. And he refuses because he's it's like, he, he didn't want the cheat code, which was sort of like the first time I think, oh, all right. I kind of, I kind of, I mean, he completely misinterprets what the game really is. Right, but that's fine because he's. Uh, here's here's one thing though. This one got me. <laughs> once we knew it was a game, once we knew it was a game, and now am I okay? I got the impression, and I still think that that he was rewriting the code. Correct. He was playing this game. He's playing the game, and 
Okay, he's, I want to I want to find this fucking game, man. Right. And he's but he's you see him in the code. So he's making changes as it goes on. And he makes the changes faster the more you hear his stepfather screaming yes. and threatening his mother in the other room. Yeah, so so basically, yeah, they, they midway through at, at the latest. They basically say, "Well, we're all characters in a game." And I like that the fact that the character who revealed it really didn't know anything. He wasn't Morpheus. He couldn't he couldn't explain the matrix. He couldn't even show you the matrix. He just nope. said, "I I don't know who made it." And all all he really wanted to say was, "Don't kill that guy. It's not that kind of game." Yep. And dude, I got to tell you, I have not had this kind of react the last time I had this kind of reaction physically to a scene. Mm-hmm. It was a com- different physical reaction, but just what this did to my brain and body. I-, I had like a paradigm shift without a clutch in that moment. And it wasn't the- it wasn't the reveal. It was truly the fact that they revealed it midway through the film. If you know me, you know how much I love the what the fuckery. <laughs> just the- <laughs> that's that. Oh, God, I love this movie so much the more I think about it. I mean, I have issues with it. Like, just going back to what the fuck kind of game is there. There are definitely things that you can pick apart in this movie and i'm sure if i read the reviews i go all right i can see that i can see that and if people go see the film and come back at us with well what about this maybe we'll be conceding things but i still the sheer balls of this film mm-hmm. i mean to cast diet lane oh. as as in in, in this, this older rich lady with, with a fuckboy uh role and, I, and first, I was watching this. I'm thinking, oh well, she, she refuses. You know, she she's wearing this robe while they're having sex. He's butt naked, <laughs> but she's she shows nothing. And I'm thinking, oh well, I guess they didn't pay her enough to to do a nude scene. And then later on, once you kind of know what's going on, or at least I did, and you see her again have sex with him wearing the robe. In the exact same way, and in fact, this hold, holding it closed over her breasts in, within the exact same posture and gesture, I thought at this point, oh, of course, this is a twelve-year-old boy's idea of sex. He knows what a naked man looks like. That's why we're seeing McConaughey butt yep. right and left. But he's never seen a naked lady, or he's uncomfortable with the idea. So she has. Of course, she has sex with her clothes on. And of course, the character played by his mother is pretty well covered the whole time. Right. And, and when McConaughey and Hathaway actually have sex, he does the most childish thing possible. He stops in the middle of it, throws up his arms and, and says, OK, I win. <laughs> I had sex with you. I won. And she and even in the, the context, she's looking at her like, the hell? She had her own what-the-fuck moment with that, but it was perfectly in keeping. And I thought, okay, that is so childish. It's like, if you don't know, if you have no personal experience of sex, you can have, it's going to be like flag football. Whatever, whatever your experience is, you're going to relate it to that. So the more I thought about this movie, the more the noir shards that were stuck in the celluloid all the way through. The noirs. The noirs. It was, it was like, okay... It's everything. We, this is a kid who spent a lot of time watching, you know, Turner Classic movies. Uh, I mean, they, they make it. They they make him out to be a, a savant, but somewhere on the autism spectrum. And you know through the whole movie that that he's a real person, even when you think the foreground characters, McConaughey and 
Jimon Hansu and and the the fishing tackle salesman are real people. You you know the kid's there and that he's doing this for the kid and that he cares about the kid. And then you look back at it and of course everything is in a child's perspective. So you are you become concerned about the kid. First because McConaughey obviously is, then the mother obviously is worried for him. Even though she's played a femme fatale role, she's not Barbara Stanwyck in in Double Indemnity. <laughs> She's been hurt. It's a very Me Too era version of this plot because she's living with an abusive husband. But you get the sense like the game got out of control. Like it went, it took on its own identity. It gained agency. And so he sends in this, this character, the, the, the besuited, bespoke fishing tackle salesman who completely stands out in this environment, doesn't fit in with any of the other stock characters to try to stop it. Okay, don't kill that guy. And since we're spoiling everything, when, when he winds up stabbing the, the stepfather at the end, when he's abusing the mother, you realize that the whole movie, the, 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 the purpose of the game was to channel his rage, to, was to block out those sounds, to, to create a tranquil world that he was in complete control of. And then when he couldn't, when he was rewriting it, subconsciously changing the environment he had created in which he escaped, so that the real world was leaking into it. The abusive stepfather showed up. The mother showed up. There was, you know, there was talk of killing this guy. The, the knife that kept getting passed back and forth that was sitting on the kid's desk. These are all things like, okay, I can't, I can't hide from it anymore. You were basically seeing his coping mechanisms, his denial, this wall he built around himself, just sort of peeling away in onion layers. And the more I thought about it, the more I just thought that it was a brilliant metaphor because giving it that, oh, we're all in a computer game thing is a, is a distancing thing. It's, it, it, you don't, it sucks you into dealing with this kid's pain. Cause I like mm-hmm. beautiful boy and movies about addiction or abusive parents. I can't watch those cause it just brings up too many bad memories for me. So I avoid all that. This completely sucked me in and Gave me all the same feels that you would in a, in a, in a straight narrative about a, a child in an abusive environment, but but drew me in so gradually <laughs> that I had no idea until it was too late, and by then I was hooked. I I, I really I want to know I I should have, I should do some research actually. <laughs> I want to know how this film got greenlit. <laughs> I want to know what executives said yes and just go thank you. I would be surprised if uh, this was a, a studio film. I think this was probably put together. It's got four separate production companies behind it, which usually means okay they sold a bunch of foreign territories. There's a dozen different distributors. It's not like Paramount is putting out the movie. Right. They, they sold Hungary as a separate territory. This is the indie movie model. I gotcha. So, yeah, it's not a studio film by any means, and it, it doesn't feel like it, but it does feel like the kind of thing that you could get a European distributor excited about. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. The budget is estimated at $25 million, which I think is probably for mostly locations and cast. And the cast, Because yeah. really, when you think about it, it takes place on a boat, takes place in a, a converted cargo container that is his home, takes place in a bar, or he's driving around. It's like Mamma Mia. Yeah, there, there's really, it's, yeah, it's like Mamma Mia, but it didn't want to make me throw somebody at the screen. 
The effects are minimal. I mean, it's it's storm effects. It's the shadow of a fish under the boat. Pixelating out McConaughey's dong. Pixelate, yeah, exactly. I kept, yeah. I mean, I think I think he just probably was nice and taped up for us. I, but um, can it, you imagine being an usher who hasn't seen the film walking in during this ocean, the swimming scene? Yes. <laughs> A naked McConaughey and a naked boy in the water looking at each other smiling. Yep. <laughs> and the amazing thing is that there wasn't a second when I was watching this that I thought, uh, please stop. I'm I'm very creeped out. Right, right, right. You know what the relationship was. Because they did that little thing earlier where he touches a puddle on, on right. the table in the bar and the kid knocks over his water bottle and touches a puddle on his desk and there's this moment of connection. Mm-hmm. And he goes, Patrick, is that you? You know that there's that water has some, is a thread that, that brings them together. So it made the scene less about uh, a naked man and a naked boy, and more about the tangibility of their connection over a long distance. Not as long as the distance turned out to be. <laughs> I mean, by the time the movie gets to the end and, and the kid's changing the world so he can insert himself in the game and actually interact with his father avatar, and there's just fractals flying around him, that was when I was saying, I, I know you hired the company and you paid him a certain amount of money and you're going to use the effects, but I feel like the movie's over. No. So that was that was my one <laughs> gotcha. complaint. Everything else, the fact that the bartender, Jack, I think his name was, he was a perfectly normal person who spoke in, in, a, in a perfectly normal manner when they were talking about things like, it's nice for you to buy a drink for, you know, that crippled little fisherman, or, oh, you're going to catch that fish, or I'm worried, maybe you should talk to Dr. Bob, you're too obsessed with catching that fish. They have this conversation, you sense they've had the conversation before, but then when McConaughey starts speaking about the meta situation, saying, how long have we been on this island? Do you remember anything? Why is there nothing, no other islands on the map? And every time, Jack would freeze and his eyes would just go dead. I have to give credit to the actor for doing this because it was a very subtle thing. Once you know what's going on, it's like you can hear him processing, processing. Mm-hmm. You can see that you mm-hmm. can see the little beach ball spinning in his eyes. Yeah, the, the movie plays fair all the way through. Once you know what's going on, you still don't know what's going on. That, that's the, because you know what's going on midway through the film. Right. But you don't know how it's going to play out, What, mm-hmm. h- how what happens in the game affects what happens in real life, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I was right with a, with a writer and director wanted me to be as far as figuring out what was happening. And at no, really at no point did I know what was going to happen. The movie kept surprising me. Not in a, oh, you got me, twisted kind of way. Just no. like a... I don't know where this story's going, I, but I, I'm desperate to know, which is rare. Usually, it's... usually movies, I mean, I'm sure you're the same way. There's only so many tropes. There's not a lot of movies whose stuffing we haven't seen, and we're usually ahead of where it's going to go. Not always, but usually. And, and the movies where we're not are the movies that I think we tend to, to praise the most, not because they're fooling us. But because they're telling a story that is particular and meaningful to the storytellers. This isn't a canned, focus-grouped film. Oh, God, no. I mean, it's well-structured. It's built on on the classic three-act structure, and it works, and all the twists and all the reveals and all the inciting incidents are exactly where they need to be. But it's the emotional impact of what happens 
that's unusual. Mm-hmm. It's not not like oh it's, oh it's a, a, a tearful emotional roller coaster ride and you really should go see it and, you know and weep out your free radicals. It's not that kind of movie at all. But it's a movie where the characters earn your concern despite the fact that some of them are just computer game avatars being manipulated by a disturbed child or maybe because of that. I'm just giddy. This just, just just the whole idea of this film makes me giddy. That's kind of why I really want people to see it in the theater because I'd love it if the studios actually if this made money and then people would start thinking, "Gee, maybe we should make kind of smart films." Yeah, I don't think it's going to change the I know. It's it's not, it's not going to change the the fundamental this, actually, by virtue of the fact that we did for the Slumgullion an extraordinarily rare non-spoiler review up front, shows that this movie, the impact of this movie, the effect of this movie, is dependent on not talking about it too much. There's never going to be, there never could be a saturation TV campaign for this movie. Even if all, yeah. even if all Hollywood's billions were behind it and they could afford to get a Super Bowl commercial, one, you can't talk about the movie without talking about it too much. And two, no matter how much you talk about it, you can't communicate the effect of seeing it play out. because Bringing it's... things back around. Ooh, how's this for circular? Just like Psycho. Mm-hmm. It really is just like Psycho in that, in, in that respect. I mean, Psycho is a deliberately nihilistic movie. And that was unusual at the time. And, and I think that's part of why it's still so effective now because people are mentally ready for that movie. In fact, it's almost it's almost too tame. If you're a millennial and you see it for the first time but without knowing too much about it, it'll have some effect, but not close to what it had in 1960. Oh, very true. Which is true of everything. But this movie, I don't know. This movie, it, it, it's just, it was made by people who were really excited about the story. Yep. At least that's how it feels to me. But I, I agree with you. We still should... Well, as long as it's still in theaters, I'm going to urge people to see it there because while I don't think it's going to change the economics of Hollywood, I do think that every time an indie film that breaks the rules breaks out and finds an audience, it makes it easier for the next one to. It'll never dominate the box office. Indie films had their moment and I feel like they've passed and they're never going to be what brings people to multiplexes. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, I understand. Oh, yeah. But... At a time like now when we're sort of in a, a superhero tentpole franchise trough, this is a perfect movie to see. Because it is, as you said about Space Clown, it's a palate cleanser. I Oh, you stole the... I, yeah, yeah. It's a good man. <laughs> I was going to say it's a cinematic palate cleanser. I mean, I'm gearing up for Captain Marvel and Shazam and all that stuff, and I'm excited. But this was I'm, perfect. I'm complete, I was completely in the proper frame of mind to see this movie. That's that. That's the thing. It just, I, it just, it's just, it just makes me so happy that this film exists. Yes, it's surprising. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but good job, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, you know what? He's not a bad actor. He's no. He he's an actor who has good and bad instincts, and some this people... was his good. This was his good Nicolas Cage movie. Right, and and Nicholas Cage can <laughs> Nicholas Cage can still give yes. a good performance. I mean, Mandy, I, Mandy, actors like McConaughey and actors like Cage have to have respect for the material. Yep, and yeah. a, a director who knows how to harness them and curb or edit out their biggest excesses. Because and who is the director of this? This was written and directed by Stephen Knight. 
Do we know what else he has done, oh, records man? He's a British director uh, and writer. He wrote Dirty Pretty Things. Oh, okay. And, and he wrote Eastern Promises. Oh, shit, okay. And he, he's also a game show impresario. He's one of, the, one of the creators of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yes. But oh, that's awesome. The interesting thing about Eastern Promises... I'm not saying that this is this was necessarily an inspiration, but he wrote a David Cronenberg film. Fascinated me because one of the th- movies that I thought about when I walked out of Serenity was uh, a 1999 Cronenberg film called Existence. Real? Oh, oh. Now, okay. I never even. Oh, wow. My heads are hung in shame. I didn't even. That didn't even cross my mind. But that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's a similar. Except that movie relies. Existence is goopier. Existence is goopier. Existence is all Cronenberg. It's body horror. And there's a twist at the end. Yes. So Existence is very much a Cronenberg film. And this is very much not. But I just wondered if there was some sort of uh, inspiration because I did think of Existence, which I had not thought about probably since 1999. Right. Okay, if you've listened to this, then you've seen the film, so we hope you're telling your friends to see it. If you're not, start telling your friends to see it. If you didn't like it, please tell us why. And where can they tell us why? Yes, I'm putting this in this section. Meh. You can write to us at theslumgullion at AOL.com. And why AOL? Because it's AOL. There's nothing on there. There's plenty of room for mail. Pile it on! And I'm serious this time. If you see this movie, I want to know what you guys thought. Yes, you can also leave us a, a, a comment on theslumgullion.com. And feel free to this leave a comment. Is, yes. Feel free to leave a comment. If you agree with this, if you disagree with this, this is a film that I think really deserves to be talked about. And we would love to get your perspectives. And if you want to read, we will read them on the air. We will. So be forewarned. So please, if you've seen it, talk to us or go see it and then talk to us. Yeah, preferably in that order. God, I fucking love this movie. And I wasn't sure I did when I walked out of it. I mean, I was mind blown. I was like, I don't know if I like the movie as a movie. Yeah, you I love said the that. concept. I love what it, but no, second time, I'm like, no, I kind of love this thing. Like yeah. I said on Twitter, I'm seriously thinking about uh, taking the Godsmack song Serenity and writing a song about this movie. I would not discourage you from that at all. <laughs> it has been, no, I, I thought about the movie that whole night. I was just like, I can't believe a film is making me do this again. This is so awesome. It's rare. Oh, man, it's rare. I had no intention of going to see it. I was barely aware of the title. So thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, no, it's, uh, I, will tell, I will tell Charlie thanks, the guy, the guy who grabbed me. Tell I would have loved to have been in the pitch sessions. I would love yeah. to have heard how they, how they were told about this movie. Yeah, was it just to read the script or was there? You might want to talk, try talking to him first. I'd love to know how that happened. I bet this was a spec script. I mean, I'm sure he had to pitch it to money people. Right. But I don't think he sold a pitch and then wrote it. It just doesn't feel right. like that kind of movie. No, no. It feels like something that was in his head. For a while. Yeah. For a while. For a while. Complex permutations of the idea and how it all comes together. Not that it's a it's a heist film or it's a complex mystery. It's not like that at all. It's just... It's it has... just like Mamma Mia. <laughs> yeah. There's really no telling the two apart. And I'm just glad. I'm lucky I didn't walk into a show to Mom and Mia because I don't know at what point, if ever, I would have noticed I was in the wrong place. <laughs> okay, there was after recording. I had to at least bring the running gag back. And we'll be right back. 
And welcome back to the Liam Neeson Appreciation Society. Uh, we decided that since we kind of went whole hog on Serenity in the last segment, which is segment one, instead of in segment two, which is the UMC, we kind of did the UMC in segment one instead of segment two. So segment two is now going to be segment one. Huh? Exactly. And Liam Neeson hates black people. <laughs> But he got over it by jogging, I guess. I, you know, I, I kind of skimmed Twitter. I'm, I'm not, I, I can't say I'm really an expert on the situation. I, I tend to skim Twitter anyway. No, all I know is it happened years ago and he got, and he dealt with it and he expressed regret with it. And now everybody is deciding they're never going to see a, another Liam Neeson film because of something that happened years ago. Feels like a lot of these things that come up. Oh, you just found out blah, blah, blah was a horrible racist or a terrible misogynist. It's just usually because they got up on a podcast or some other disreputable format. Damn those talk shows. Yeah, and they told a story about it. Oh, by the way, did I ever mention? And then I put on blackface. Yeah, I mean, the blackface (laughs) stuff obviously came out. Virginia. Yeah, yeah, which (laughs) Virginia is for lovers. Of minstrel shows. Speaking of which, since since we're going to get in trouble, did you know there was a minstrel show called All Darkies Look Alike to Me? Uh, that sounds like like trolling. That can't be true. I actually saw the the ad. It was actually on a piece talking about Liam Neeson. Are you sure somebody and- just didn't Photoshop this up to to add to the outrage? I would believe it, except that it was in pictures of other minstrel shows they were talking about instead of, you know, they were saying, why don't you Google minstrel shows and see what those things were like? And then they were they started showing all these different um, like pictures and ads for minstrel shows. Well, I I guess I can't say it really astonishes me because one night Mary and I were watching Turner Classic Movies and we flipped it on in the middle of some uh, Judy Garland and I think Mickey Rooney movie. It might have been. Oh, boy. They're trying to put on a show and there's a scene where something happens and I don't know what triggered me, but I said, oh, Jesus Christ, we're going to see her in blackface. And then we did. And I said, Jesus Christ, this is going to turn into a whole minstrel show number. And it did. Oh, no. Look, real fast, I, I was wrong. It was not called All Darkies Look Alike to Me. It was called All Coons Look Alike to Me. Oh, well. And I'm it was a, a darkie misunderstanding written and composed by Ernest Hogan. Who I assume was a white man. I am going to guess, yes. Okay, and when was this? What year? Um, I am looking at this right now. Uh, I cannot find a date for that one. And this was a Broadway show or a tragedy? I know, it was just, it was just a minstrel show. All right. Ernest Hogan. Here we go. He's on Wikipedia. Oh, no. He was an African-American entertainer. The first, was? Oh, wow. The first African-American entertainer to produce and star in a Broadway show, The Oyster Man, in 1907. He was born in 1865, died in 1909. And he helped to popularize the musical genre of ragtime. Okay. Worked in traveling minstrel shows as a dancer, musician, and comedian. In 1895, he composed several popular songs, including La Palma La. Yes. All coons look alike to me. And the success of this last song created many derogatory imitations. Really more derogatory than that. Known as, (laughs) quote, coon songs because of the use of racist and stereotypical images of black people. So... 
Uh, kudos to you, Ernest. Hey, everyone's got to make a living. While Hogan was considered one of the most talented performers and comedians of his day, his contribution to the racist, quote, coon song craze haunted him. Before his death, he stated that he regretted using the racial slur in his song. So, yes, and here's some sheet music. Oh, and here's a picture of Judy Garland in blackface. Yeah, yeah, I bet you didn't have to dive too deep to find that. No, all I had to type in was minstrel show Judy Garland. And and people wonder why she took powerful pharmaceuticals. And the film you saw, by the way, is Everybody Sing. Everybody Sing. Okay. All right. I thought it was Babes in something or other. That's babes in blackface. Babes in blackface. Yes, that's what I thought it was. That's because that's all I remember about it. They wanted to put on a minstrel show, and by God, they did. With Alan Jones and Fanny Bryce. Hmm. I don't think I saw that part. Alan Jones, man, he's like the poor man's Nelson Eddy. <laughs> Is there a rich man's Nelson Eddy? No, there's a comfortable middle class Nelson Eddy, which was Nelson Eddy. Oh, okay. That, that, that is acceptable. That is indeed acceptable. So I've seen a couple of movies over the last couple of days. Well, if they have less than what I'm gathering now is the usual amount of minstrel show material, I'd like to talk about them. Otherwise, I feel like we've covered the subject. Well, the first thing I saw was Bamboozled by Spike Lee. No, I'm oh, kidding. Sh- oh. <laughs> Come on, that was good. That would, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that. <laughs> no, okay. So for a, a, a new film in the theaters, uh, last night, the other half of the brain, and I saw Lego Movie, the second part. Uh-huh. It's cute. Were you up for cute? Did cute Actually, satisfy you? I, yeah, I honestly didn't even know it was out. Like I said, um, the, uh, the other half of the brain called and said, you're seeing Lego movie tonight. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. He hadn't. He, he found out that it came out. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to see Lego movie. So, I mean, it is. It's, it, there's, there's some really funny jokes. Unfortunately, the only downside to it that I have is it kind of has the same emotional beats as the first movie. Almost down to the, you know, two-thirds of the way in character discovers the real world and we see how the real world connects. Even though we've already seen how the real world connects earlier, it's it's weird. I mean, I, I enjoyed the film, but I was like, wow, this is almost beat for beat, the first film. It's, it's a minor, It's it really is kind of like a, a minor grievance because I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. This is one of the first, first times that I saw a film in 2D and I went, God, I wish I'd seen it in 3D. Hmm. Really? Because just watching it in 2D, I'm like, oh my God, the 3D in this is going to be freaking amazing. Uh, if only I could see 3D reliably. So I may go back and see it. I doubt it since I've already seen it. I don't want to pay 3D prices again <laughs> just to see that again. But um, I mean, I did. I enjoyed it. It was entertaining. I laughed loudly in a couple places. There are a couple of really, really nice jokes. But I do have to say... The film was missing Morgan Freeman and ah, Liam Neeson. It didn't have any new characters that approached the level of fun that uh, Morgan Freeman and ah, Liam Neeson brought to their characters. Okay. I'm going to just jimmy this in here before I forget about it because... So um, it seems like Orville Redenbacher spoiled Avengers Endgame. Okay. They had a poster with everyone in their new costumes. Everyone who's going to be... Okay. They weren't supposed to post it yet. If it was an accident, you never know. Sometimes it might. It's just viral marketing. But it did remind me of uh, the time when the crying game twist was spoiled for me by Bosco. (laughs) So what else did you see? 
Boss. Well, no, before we get into that, what did you see in the theaters last night? I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, finally? I thought you'd seen it already. Well, as people may know, Mary has been feeling poorly and she wanted to see it. It's it's the music of her people. And we waited and waited. Uh, okay. Hope that she would feel better. And okay. then last night, I just decided to give her space. And I went out and just, that's why I didn't know what I was going to go see. And then I realized it was down to just a couple of, at the multiplex, it was it was reduced to one or two showings a day, which is usually an indication that it's going to be gone by Thursday night. Right. So I thought, I better just see it now. And also, to introduce a sad note into our usual japery and hijinks, I had a friend in high school who died, and he introduced me to Queen and was very much into the band, and I always think about him when I hear their music. So I thought, well, that's going to be a lot of thinking about him. So you did see it when it came out, right? Yes. Okay. What did you think? I thoroughly enjoyed Remy Malek's performance. I thought the Live Aid recreation at the end was amazing. I fucking hated the film. I did not like the changes that were made to make it a movie. I hated, hated, hated with a passion Mike Myers' cameo. Oh, you did mention that. I think you texted me something to that effect. Yeah, he was annoying. And it was all just for didn't you, one think, joke. It was there yeah. for that one joke. That's the only reason he was in the film. And I did think it was kind of interesting that, you know, the movie made um, that uh, what was uh, his relationship with the woman, the most important relationship, period. Uh, I think you said something to that effect also. So I went into it expecting that they were really going to downplay the gay side. And, you know, it's like, oops, you have AIDS. I must have caught that from a toilet seat. I mean, she did come out and say fairly early in the story or earlier than I expected. Yeah, Freddie, you're gay. No, that uh, yeah, it just it just it really felt it just just felt like the, the you know. And now, granted, I am not saying that um, we needed the the uber dark and uber depressing Sasha Baron Cohen version that he wanted, but a nice meeting of the mind, so to speak, I think would have been good because this was too ABC TV movie for me. Right. You know, actually, this is an interesting thing to me, possibly to no one else on earth. So pardon me. Uh, my friend, Dennis, who died, he took his own life. And mm. it was it was life ending and life changing. And the thing about it is he was also, by his own definition, bisexual. And because of because his mother had married this guy who was a cop mustache and an El Camino and all the attitudes that go with it, he had a really difficult time coming to coming around to the conclusion that very possibly he was gay. Okay. And I kind of bought the struggle and the self deception and the inability. I mean, they could have gone more into the family dynamics, and I think they didn't want to just because. I, it, it, it's it's a touchy thing nowadays to make people of color the, the bad guys as far as right. cultural attitudes. I actually found his background fascinating. I wish they dealt with it a little bit more. But but since he suppressed it so much for public consumption, I, I can't fault the filmmakers for doing that. I didn't hate the movie. I felt like it was, you know what? It was it was a TV movie. It was a TV it was movie. A TV it, was a little, movie. it had a little bit of VH1 behind the music feel to it. And... Part of it was, I, I absolutely understand the, the compromises you have to make 
when adapting a life story for the film because life is just oh so messy and very often dull and goes off. But it does find a way. uh, I've heard that. Uh, It also goes off into a lot of tangents, as we know, which is why I think ours is the most lifelike podcast of all. (laughs) It's just just to to condense that and and to make it uh, obey a three-act structure requires playing fast and loose with with people's uh, autobiographies. And I'm I'm working on a project right now where I'm adapting someone's life story. And I am feeling a tremendous amount of guilt when I have to make up something to deliver a movie moment that is true more or less to the spirit of what happened, but I I cannot actually use the facts for for one reason or another, sometimes because there are other people involved in the moment who do not want to be part of of this movie. So I kind of get that. But yeah, it did have a sort of Yes, it did have a kind of a TV movie feel. Everything's a little bit too light. And what worried me about it was it was made with the cooperation of the band. Now, that's yes. good and bad. But it yes. made me know right in that nobody's going to come off as a bad guy. People will fight. But as he says, well, families have fights. It was that kind of dynamic. And maybe that's true to to the history. But it made me know that they were that they were there were places they would not go, could not go. So there were certain dramatic moments that were not going to be delivered. It just felt, yeah. So for that reason, it had a kind of a light weight feel to it. Well, and, and also, I, I, I freely admit, I don't want to put any more money in Brian Singer's pocket. Yeah, I was shocked. I thought his name had been taken off it. No, uh, I no, completely no, 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 misunderstood yeah. what happened. I knew he got fired, and someone else was brought in to finish it, but I didn't realize that his na- he was still the credited director when I saw it pop because up because of DGA. Oh yeah, entirely uh, because well, of the DGA. D- on the plus side, though, uh, Brian Singer's next film is going to be Red Sonia, and I have absolutely no desire to see that whatsoever. So he's not getting any more of my money again. I would be shocked if he actually makes it all the way to the end of principal photography on, on a Red Sonia movie. I think he's just, every day he's becoming a little more toxic. I don't think he's got a future in, in motion picture. I... I, I I, I don't think I, he's got. I, I have a feel. I, I want to believe you, but this is the cynic in me. The studios will <gasps> find a way, possibly. At it, least until he stops making money. I think we 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 know for a fact that he's not going to win the Oscar. Was it even nominated? I I I don't pay attention. I really I stopped paying attention to the Oscars years ago. Okay, without bringing everything to a grinding halt, so I can Google it and. Uh, People, I apologize when I bring us something up and then I don't have the facts to back up what I'm saying. But that's sort of baked into the podcast format. We're just, we don't know where the conversation is going to go. But my point is that I don't think Singer is going to get nominated. If nominated, he will not win. If he wins, he will not serve. And also, it just was not that well directed. I, mm-hmm. It was fine. It was fine. But it was, was a TV movie. It, it was, was a TV movie. It was movie. a perfectly competent job. So Bohemian Rhapsody was something that... Was uh, there. Was there. It, it The band's experience is always different than the fans' experience. Right. So what Queen... What, what memories Queen's bring brings up for me of living in this little you know, beach town in California had nothing to do with snorting coke off some leather dude's abs in... Switzerland or wherever the hell they were. I miss those days. Yeah, I, I you know, it's funny. Uh, at some point, I was going like, okay, did they, did they run out of money and just buy outtakes and short ends from cruising? 
<laughs> there's there's where all there's where the missing footage is. Yeah. Thought so. Okay. Yeah, Brian Singer owns it. What a shocker. <laughs> I didn't do that. Yes, I did. Oh, well, moving on. Yeah, so that was me. Uh, what else did you see? Oh, the other thing I saw was Velvet Buzzsaw. Oh, of course you did. Of course you did. Do tell. I know nothing. Uh, okay. All right. Um, I'm kind of at a loss for this movie, sort of, because on the one hand... This character is filled with the most pretentious, artsy-fartsy motherfuckers, characters that I normally hate. Right. Okay. And there is there is not the closest that a character comes to that I kind of like is um is is John Malkovich's character, but he's barely in it. But he's the only character who's not an artsy, fartsy, pretentious douchebag. So this movie is the the truest case of Schadenfreude I have ever experienced in a horror film. Ah, uh, okay. Because I watched the I watched the trailer. Yeah. And immediately thought this was not made for me. Is it supposed to be? Are you supposed to be laughing at it? Yes. Yes, you are. Okay. All right. No, it is, but but it's not like a laugh out loud comedy. It's very much a. It's supposed to be a satire of the art world with horror elements thrown in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it has some decent kills. It's it's fun. Like I said, I mean, I I was definitely enjoying watching these pretentious douchebags get killed. Well, I think that's part that's part of the filmmaker's art. In, in crafting a horror movie is in finding the mix between sympathetic characters who you desperately want to survive and douchebags who you will enjoy seeing killed. Because yeah. you, can't, you cannot maintain sympathy for the, for the whole course of a movie when, when one after another after another uh, of people you enjoy or like or who, who seem entitled to life are being killed in front of you. I mean, I think that that, that exhausts an audience more than anything else faster than anything else. But there is no end to schadenfreude. It is a completely renewable resource. You Dear can... Lord, is Jake Gyllenhaal hysterically irritating in this movie. You know, he has been so irritated in so many movies, and I can't tell if it's him or me, or if it's deliberate or accidental. But I'm trying to think of a movie where I actually liked him and was supposed to. October Sky? Uh, we may have to go back that far. <laughs> I, I kind of liked from, him in Donnie Darko. I was going to say, but Donnie Darko, that he was, he, there was the creep factor going on with that one too. Yeah, yeah. The he um, was a creepy kid. In this one, he is definitely meant to be. His character's name is Morph. M O R F. Okay. And he's an art critic. I wonder how timely that really is. Satirizing the art scene. I know it feels like it doesn't feel like that 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 moment is past. Do we even have an art scene left that's not just completely corporate? That's that's kind of what the film's about. Oh, okay, all right. That's well. kind of that's kind of part of the the fact that you said corporate is very actually apropos to the movie. Okay. Because all the art, all art is is based on now, according to this movie and the worldview, is how much money it's perceived. It's all about the money, right? It's not even about it's not even about where it's hanging or anything about that. This is entirely just about corporations buying it now. Where can they get the most money by placing it? That kind of thing. When I was going to college, 
there was there was this professor. He was one of the most respected professors at 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 Akron University. <laughs> and uh, granted, they didn't have much of a theater department to begin with, but like he traveled. He knew several well-known acting teachers, especially. Uh, and um, he taught very much, for lack of a better word, the what's the word? Not art house, but he was very much into the actor's method, and all of his all of the shows that he directed were. very very artsy fartsy pretentious bullshit okay avant-garde that's a better way of putting it yes i try i mean i we got we we once got into a two to three day fight in a movement class because um i was challenging his artistic worldview uh-oh I think the only reason that I passed the class is I was one of the few people who would challenge him but actually had the stones to back it up. Well, that's the thing I always found at a certain level in academia. Professors are cut from the same cloth as every other human being. And there there are some who simply will not brook disrespect or disputation. But there are some who, even if they think you're an idiot with absolutely nothing to back up your argument, if you will bother to argue with them, that means that you are taking their subject seriously enough to devote thought to it, or at least spleen. I'm pretty sure that's what he thought about me, but he did actually tell me once that I did have an argument. Okay. So I didn't feel I didn't feel that bad. And I loved talking to him about theater. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I loved hearing stories about his training in Poland. I love yeah, he trained in Poland. Um this isn't Joseph Grotowski, is it? He was trained by Grotowski. Wow, okay. He was he was trained by Grotowski. Yes, he is one of Grotowski's students. All right. And he wound up in Akron. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yep. Oh, the fa- I love the fact that all I had to say was pulled you exactly who I was talking about. That's awesome. <laughs> That's really awesome. No, no. He, yeah, he was one of his his prized pupils, as a matter of fact, supposedly. But no, I, 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 I would get into I wouldn't say I would not say arguments with him, but I would definitely get into debates with him, you know, commercial theater versus, quote unquote, artistic theater. Remember when commercial theater was healthy enough that we could actually afford to argue about it? Yes. We, we can actually afford to disdain it. <laughs> yes. Oh, those days. I remember those days. I remember. It's like, I will go I will go to a movie by myself. Oh, yeah. I have no problem with that. And I don't feel self-conscious about it. But I was one of the very few people when I lived in New York who would go to uh, a play by myself. Okay. I would go to the tickets booth in Times Square. And they were selling two tickets for the price of one. Or, oh, yeah. as I discovered... One ticket for half price. I saw a lot of plays that I would not otherwise have seen and had no one to talk to them about because it was just me, which is probably one of the reasons I'm on a podcast because I I have so many unexpressed thoughts, people, and I really appreciate you for you being here for me because I had nobody to talk to about Bass Appeal. They're there. They're there. I would have loved to have done that play. You know what? It's a It's a nice two-hander. I really liked it. Well, because I liked the film. I enjoyed the movie, so I would have been very interested to see it as a stage play. Yeah, I saw Milo O'Shea in it. Okay. Who was remarkable. Uh, and who was the guy who was in, who played the the young male protagonist? The, as, uh, I know that in the movie version of Mass Appeal, it was Zeljko Ivanek played the young priest. Oh, geez. Remember when he had a moment? Yes, that one moment. It came, it went. Uh, can't say I'm sorry to see it go. 
But uh, yeah, I remember. he wasn't Michael O'Keefe. Michael, Michael O'Keefe. oh, miles and miles of Michael mm. O'Keefe. Right, and Milo O'Shea. <laughs> O'Keefe and O'Shea. Now that sounds like two Irishmen who'd be doing a, a minstrel act on in vaudeville. Oh, bring it all back around. Mm-hmm. It's important. Oh, that is a hoot. No, I, I that that's that's a show that I, that's a show that I would like to have done. The show that I would love to do that I I would I think I've said this before. I would. I would give up my 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 self retirement from acting if I could do Glengarry Glen Ross. Did you see that on Broadway? No, I have never seen it on stage. Saw I've it. only seen the movie. Saw it with the original cast. Yeah, I remember you telling I me lucked, that. I still need you for it. I lucked into that, man. I don't even remember where I got the tickets. Somebody I worked with or for either gave it to me as a reward for doing something or more likely because they just couldn't go and they knew I was one of those people. <laughs> One of them dirty theater people. Yeah. Yeah, it was 1985. It had just barely opened. Okay. Anyway, it's a great theater piece. I don't know how good a play it is. Coming out of it, I don't really wasn't sure what I was supposed to be feeling. But it's understood. That is something that I have always wanted to do. I have done my mammoth. I did Oleana. Yeah. Yeah, the most oleaginous of the mammoths. (laughs) It was a staged reading, so I didn't feel that bad. Oh, okay. But still, yes, I did Oleana. Oh, weren't you in, hell, you were in, uh, was it Extremities? I was in Extremities. And, and even though I did, even though I I did not play the main character, I was in Sylvia or the Goat Fucker. You got around. Uh, oh, 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 hon, if I could actually find and write down everything that I did from that 97 to 2001, I did over 100 shows in three years. Oh, that was a fun. You played a lot of scumbags. Uh, yes, I did. If you could have taken every character you played and put them in a horror movie, they would all be enjoyable to watch die. It was either scumbags or comic relief. But yeah, I, I was either the rapist in Extremity or Touchstone and As You Like It, which could be the same person. I like scumbags or comic relief. <laughs> it It's not often done well, but when it is. Baracchio. Baracchio in Much Ado About Nothing, I think, is a, is a, is a fun comic relief scumbag. I would agree with that. Not Don John, because he's no. just a scumbag. No, he's just a scumbag, yeah. That reminds me, one last thing. I, I was going to text you about this, and I, I was I'm going to mention this on I can mention this on here on the show. I didn't want to mention this on Twitter because I thought I might get in trouble here. Um thanks to the YouTubes, mm-hmm. I have now seen my favorite production of the play, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh really? The two thousand and nine UK touring company with Sylvester McCoy as Mr. Mushnick. <laughs> Seriously? Yes, the fucking right. doctor is Mr. Mushnick. All right, why not? That alone, I, I mean, at first I was, I was, I said the 2009 UK tour. I was like, okay, I haven't seen it. Let's take a look and see what the staging is. And I was like, okay, music sounds good. And then it gets to the opening scene. I'm like, is that Sylvester? Oh, <gasps> that's Sylvester McCoy. And then it got into Skid Row downtown. They started doing some really interesting staging. Mm-hmm. So it's got some great staging, some really interesting um, musical interpretations. And then it's got the seventh doctor is freaking Mr. Mushnick. So right there, I'm just like, it's worth it right there. The plant, I was a little bit worried about. Like the first two stages of the plant did not look very good. And I'm like, really? That's where you're going to fail. Everything else in this production is awesome, but the plant's going to suck. 
And then once they got to like the, the, the full one, I'm like, well, I still don't like it, but it looks better moving than it does standing still. So, okay, you, you sold me. How did you even hear about this production? I, it's, I watch a, I've watched a lot of theatrical productions on YouTubes because I can. And this one popped into my feed. It said 2009 UK touring production. Not the 83 West End production. No, no, this is 2009, which was the same time that it was um, when it was uh, redone on Broadway as well. Okay. All right. Yeah. Because I saw it at the the Orpheum off, off Broadway. Okay. Maybe it was just off Broadway. I think it started off, off Broadway and then it made its way to off Broadway. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, seeing interviews with Ellen Green. Yeah, it was off, off Broadway to begin with. If anybody wants to see the seventh doctor playing Mr. Mushnick, it is available on the YouTubes and it's actually, it's, it's a really good production. I was very impressed with the staging all, all around. Okay. This is the director who took the show and did something fun with it. Mm -hmm. And the guy who plays Oren Scrivello, DDS is, who boy. Uh, is that good or bad? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Say no more. It's one of those performances. Gotcha. Absolutely. Gotcha. <laughs> Absolutely. Which is actually how I feel about every single Liam Neeson performance, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, wait a minute. Crawl. Keep talking. No, wasn't he in Crawl? He was in Crawl. I don't think he had a lot of lines. I don't think he uh, did a great job with the ones he did have. Prob- well, yeah, probably not. He was in Excalibur, too. He and- was in Excalibur? Yes. He played Sir Gawain. Oh, was- that's right. I think he got cast because he was a big dude. He was a big Irish dude. But the one performance he's given uh, that I think he probably did nothing embarrassing in was a movie that nobody saw. I think it was 85 or 86. It was a, it was a movie that attempted to be a romantic thriller pairing Dennis Quaid and Cher called Suspect. I remember that movie. He's a big old mute homeless guy who I think witnessed the crime. Mute homeless. Sounds like a baseball player. Yeah. Coming up to bat now, it's number 23, mute homeless. Yeah. It works. It wakes. I'm telling you, it wakes. Yeah. Yeah. Got to put that little. Come on, sorry. Got to put that little echo on it, though. Mute. Homeless, homeless, homeless. There you go. How the hell did we get? Oh, never mind. There's no point in asking. There's no <laughs> point in asking. Because, because all roads lead to Liam Neeson. <laughs> Apparently. You know what? Which if he, if he had, like, if that movie, if Suspect had been a hit and he had gotten typecast and only played mutes from then on, he might not be, now nah, because he said it in an interview, he'd still be in trouble. You know what? It wouldn't have helped. Yeah. I'm just trying to help. Hang on a second. I am, I am looking for something here. All right. You talk for a second. <laughs> uh, oh, well, so a thing I saw today that delighted me, I think I saw it on io9, the Captain Marble website. It's basically a GeoCities page from 1995. I heard they did kind of like a, 90, a 90s vibe for and it. And it's perfect. It's perfect. There's like broken links and pictures that don't show up. There's a, a little punch the scroll game, which I wasted way too much time playing. Okay, that's and, funny. And uh, now to bring things full circle. It is now time for the fascinating, irritating thing about our conversation. Serenity. No, about serenity. Oh, wait, didn't we do that? Not during the conversation. Oh, okay, I remember. Or maybe we. I don't remember. No, did we? I don't. I. You should have. I don't remember. You should. You're right. 
Let's do a fascinating, irritating thing about Liam Neeson and call it a day. All right. But first thing, before we do that, I just want to ask you, have you seen any more episodes of Star Trek Discovery? Uh, I watched the second. Okay. I will not be watching anymore. Uh, I think you should watch the third. Really? Yeah, I do. Okay. All right. All, all the right. way, All the way to the end. Oh, are you saying what I think you're saying? I am saying that. Oh, well, okay. All right. All right. She's coming back already. Cool. Okay. Yep. And oh, not just her, but your hope that her series will be about Section 31. Yeah. It's going to be about Section 31. Okay. All right. If she's already coming back, then yes. Okay. I will. I will watch the third one then. I will warn you. There is some boring stuff about Klingon politics and Ash Tyler and, and Laurel having a baby when he was Voch. And it's tedious, but, you know, you can, I'm sure you can fast forward through it. And also, there's a separate baby head. Spoiler. Oh, well, that's always fun. Although, Tendo, you know, now I feel bad. Now I probably am going to get that, that, that freaking CBSL access, not only for the, uh, for the um, Section 31, but I want to watch the fucking Twilight Zone. Oh, is that going to be on CBSL access? Yeah. Didn't know that. Man, CBS, you're backing me into a corner. I know. I I, I, I know. I mean, especially because I'm sorry, that Twilight Zone commercial was the only interesting thing about the Super Bowl, which I swear all I heard, all I heard was how boring the Super Bowl was and blah, 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 this. And it was one of the worst Super Bowls. And then I watched all the trailers and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, the trailers are boring as hell, too. There was really nothing that even the stuff I'm interested in seeing, like Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel and it, none of it added anything to my anticipation. No, it just just except for like I said, the only thing that I found even remotely interesting was that Twilight Zone commercial. When's it debut? I think March or April. Oh, that's soon. Okay, maybe later than that. I don't know. I really wasn't paying attention. I I didn't even know that there was going to be a Twilight Zone commercial. I just started hearing his voice, and I'm like, wait, is this what I think? Oh, is this what I think it is? And then that music started playing. And I'm like, okay, all right, I'm a happy camper. All right, so there are things to look forward to. And hopefully the nuclear war won't happen before them. Exactly. Oh, it could be so ill-timed. You know, that, that, that's going to be a real irritant if, you know, we all die before the Twilight Zone starts. Well, I, in reviewing my life, I know what the, the irritating part's going to be. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fascinating. It'll be a little harder to figure out. Okay, so uh, you were saying? No, no. Right. Now I was, I was just trying to bring things full around. But no, this episode is just us completely out of touch, babbling about things in random order. Yeah. So ne- next episode, we'll be back to the actual order. Yes, we'll we'll do an opening thing, and we'll we'll have planned out stuff to talk about, even though it often seems like we don't, and sometimes we don't. We'll have a regular another movie challenge. I don't know what that'll be. Do we know what that'll be? We'll, fi- we'll find something. We'll find something. We will. Su- and you know what? Hey, you can always suggest something. That is true. Then until then, until then, just remember, Liam Neeson loves you. <laughs> as long as you're... Never mind. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. You have a 96 hour... What? To never finding her. No. But if you don't, 
I will look for you. Where is she? I will find you.